You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Uh, hey, before we get going, I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week, Mubi. Uh, you'd think that right now, this juncture in history, it would be really easy to find great stuff to watch. I often find the opposite, and that is why I enjoy Mubi's service, which is a curated online cinema that streams amazing films from all over the globe. Uh, they send an email. It goes up. Uh, it's up for 30 days. That means there's only 30 movies up there at a time, which is just a pleasure, I can tell you. And often when they send out the email, like I'm looking right now at Mia Hansen Loves, the father of my children, I make a mental note and I'm like, I'm actually going to watch that like this week, like now, not at some distant future date with a log of thousands of things to watch. Uh, I've really enjoyed it so far. I think you will too. You can try movie free for 30 days at mubi.com slash long form. That's movie movie.com slash long form sign up for a extended free trial today and you'll be supporting the show all right here's that show hey welcome to the long form podcast i'm aaron lammer here with evan ratliff and max linsky my co-hosts on this podcast hey you guys hey aaron uh great show this week one i've been uh Trying to set up for a while. Were you going to ask me who's on the show this week? I was, but you just you go ahead. <laughs> Are you going to ask we me got something there. else? Classic okay. Lammer self throw. Hey, Aaron, who's on the show this week? I'm glad you asked. Uh, on the show this week, it's <laughs> Sheila Hetty. Uh, Sheila wrote a book that I really um, enjoyed um, called uh, "How Should a Person Be." Uh, that was a few years ago, and she has a new book out called "Motherhood." I know that this podcast is ostensibly uh, featuring purveyors of nonfiction. Um, and her books are really in this interesting place that I don't think fits neatly into fiction or nonfiction. They're often extended ruminations on a single question. Uh, her new book is called motherhood and it's basically a 300 page response to the question. Should I have a child? And it's really excellent. The person who's talking is Sheila, but she's also not Sheila. And, um, I, I think her work is like it's unlike anything I've ever read um, elsewhere, and uh, she's really interesting in person. Also, I'm I'm excited about this one. I also have long admired her interviews. She is a person who appreciates the interview form. Uh, her books have a lot of emails and like direct conversations between people. Um, 
I think she's like a kind of a pioneer in experimenting with bringing the way that people communicate in the modern world uh, into the world of writing That's very cool. literally. So she also did all these great interviews for the Believer. She like, is uh, she's one of the um, interviews editors at the Believer. So I did talk to her about interviewing and like how a Believer uh, interview is formatted as different. Like I, I actually did not know like what their like interview style. I mean, I've been reading them for years, but I didn't like, they actually have kind of a system. So really interesting. Cool. Uh, as always, we are brought to you by MailChimp. MailChimp makes it easy to start an email newsletter. Uh, that's another place that, uh, is a, a place of, uh, modern, uh, communication style. Hey, the email, maybe, <laughs> maybe it is the unit of our time. Uh, <laughs> thanks to MailChimp for helping make this show possible. And now here's Aaron with Sheila Hetty. Welcome, Sheila Hetty. Thanks. Um, you're in town book touring book right touring, now? Book touring, yes. Is that something you enjoy or do not enjoy? Um, I don't like getting up in the morning. Uh, <laughs> like I wake up and I'm just like, oh, I would just rather be in bed. But then once I'm actually out of bed, it's fun and fine. And I like on this particular tour in each of the cities I'm going to, I have a friend who's interviewing me, so it makes me look forward to it a lot more because yeah. I'm going around seeing people I like, and yeah. You're the, uh, or have been a uh, interviews editor of The Believer. Right. Is that right? What do you think the difference in talking to someone you're friends with versus like a traditional like stranger like me and you yeah. right now? I think it's worse to do an interview with your friends. Yeah. I've pretty much stopped. I mean, I'll let them have the misery of interviewing me, <laughs> but I wouldn't do it anymore. I've had experiences of interviewing friends and it just doesn't work because you end up, I don't know, you end up either like repeating things you already know about the person. So you don't have the genuine curiosity. You're sort of performing curiosity for the sake of the audience on behalf of the audience. And also, I don't think that chumminess is nice for anybody else to witness in some way. Yeah. So I've, yeah, I've stopped doing it. It kind of reminds me of like when you're a kid and you have two people who are really good friends and then a third person becomes <laughs> yeah. friends with them and the other two people have like their inside jokes and their whole, and then you, it's like injecting this other person into the rhythm and you're both sort of condescending to them, but also condescending to your own friendship because you have to like sort of dumb it down for the new person. Yeah, that's perfect analogy. So you have a new book out. It's called Motherhood. I hope I'm not like oversimplifying by saying the book is more or less you trying to answer the question, like, do I want to have children? And what does that question mean? Yeah, I don't say me, but. Okay. Uh... <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. All right. So this is going to be like a theme. Uh, you don't say you. How do you describe? I say the narrator, the, the voice. The narrator, the voice. Of the book. Okay. And for you, like launching out on a book tour. Do readers like draw that distinction? Does it even matter if readers draw that distinction to you? It does matter. Yeah, it yeah. matters because um, it's different if it's me, Sheila, the person sitting in this chair versus if it's a construction. Yeah, it's completely different. And it's not like I care so much because I want to protect any kind of privacy I have. Yeah. It's just, it's art. It's not journalism. Not that journalism can't have art in it, but to me, the motivations are different. When you edit it, it's different. When you conceive of it, it's different. 
the point is different. So it's different. But, you know, I think that when I wrote How Should a Person Be, which is my last book, which had the character named Sheila in it, all I was talking about was the difference between me and the character. Yes. And that was 2012, and now it's 2018, and I feel like people just get it much better. There's been enough books. There's been enough change in culture. There's been enough that I don't have to talk about it that much. I can just sort of say, yeah, it's the narrator. It's not me. And people go, oh, I get it. Yeah. And I like that that change has happened in the world. So was How Should a Person Be? That's the first book of yours I've read. So when did you start writing with a narrator who might be named Sheila? With that book. That book. (laughs) Yeah. How deep into your writing life were you at the point when you started that book? So I published my first book when I was 24, Book of Short Stories. It was called The Middle Stories. And then I published a novel called Tickner a few years later. And then I started writing How Should a Person Be in 2006. So in my late 20s, I guess. Yeah. Or around the age of 30, maybe. So yeah, it was fairly... I was just my third book. Yeah. That's when I started in this weird, weird vein. <laughs> When you came upon that writing style, did it feel like, wow, this is what I've always been looking for. I've always been like driving towards this. Or was it like, this is a weird experiment. This is probably not going to work, but I'm going to see what happens. It was a bit of both, but it came out of doing interviews, actually. So it came out of a nonfiction form. Mm. So I was um, recording conversations I was having with friends yeah, sort of before I started thinking of this book and transcribing them. And when you transcribe, because I love transcribing, I've like always loved transcribing interviews, strangely pleasurable. We're gonna have to agree (laughs) to disagree on this one. (laughs) Yeah, I just like how different people phrase things. I like hearing voices, you know, translated on, you're like, you're crazy. Someone someone had once said that they wanted to do a book that would be like excerpts from this podcast, like kind Uh of put together. And like just the minute like my brain wrapped my head around the fact that we needed a transcription for like 280 hours that I was just like, no, no, we're not going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) It was like my one of my first jobs was transcribing this. um, I'll get back to the book. But this uh, there's a documentarian named Jennifer Bachewell, and she did a documentary of Paul Bowles near the end of his life. Yeah. um, The novelist. And I transcribed. I don't remember how many hours are tapes, but it was months and months. And that was my first experience transcribing. And I just, I like the intimacy that you get with the person that you're, whose voice you're transcribing. Mm. It feels more intimate than if you were just watching the videos, if you were, I think even if you're the person making the videos, because you're so attentive when you're transcribing. And there's like a level of attentiveness and care that like turns into love. And so I always really liked it. So I was transcribing conversations I was having with particularly this friend of mine, a painter named Margot Williamson. And when I was transcribing, I would say, you know, as you do, Margot, and then blah, 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 Sheila, da, 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 da. And when I started pulling some of those interviews, or conversations rather, into the more fictional stuff that I was writing for that book at a certain point, changing the names from Sheila and Margot, which I had written so many times and making these transcripts, just felt like, why am I changing the names? Who am I changing the names for? And I kept trying to change the names, but because the first draft of these conversations had been the real names, it just felt so false. 
even though the more fictional writing that I was doing came out of my imagination, let's say, as well as my life. So yeah, it wasn't like, oh, I found, like you asked the question, like, was it like, now I found what I've been moving towards, or was it a weird experiment? It was just like, it was more like, I have to be more natural. Like, I have to have less, I can't put this level of pretense or this level of fakery over it. So I guess that's an experiment, but it's also, yeah, finding some something that feels like you're moving. I mean, when you're writing, you're always trying to move towards something that feels more and more true. When you first started transcribing these first interviews for um, How Should a Person Be with Margot, like what surprised you about how the transcript differed from memory, from all of these things that you're like kind of writing in your internal memory chip of your brain and which is a transcription like process, but a very flawed, blurry yeah. one. I was amazed at how little there was. Like when you actually just write down what is said. Yeah. That's like 15% of the information, less, maybe 7% of the information of what's actually going on in a moment. Mm -hmm. So we were living our lives together and I was transcribing what we were just saying, walking down the street. You know, it wasn't an interview. It was like, yeah, walking down the street, going to visit art galleries. And you transcribe and you're like, everything that matters is not here in the transcript, which was kind of interesting. And also you realize how much assumption there is in conversation, like how much hidden information there is and how much hidden understanding there is that doesn't appear in the words. It's so strange. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's a bit like where we started talking about the inside joke between the two friends. It's like you need all the subtext. Yeah. Like, did you find that as you went on, like in um, How Should a Person Be?, the fourth wall is consistently broken where like Margot is like, I feel weird about how you're taping us right yeah. now. Did the knowledge that you were recording yourself start to invade the conversations that you were recording at all? Yes, but that wasn't a bad thing mm. because the book is about, among other things, the book sort of is about this world in which we are presenting ourselves. Yeah. And so it wasn't anything to hide. Mm. and And yet at a certain point, you do forget the microphone. I mean, it's like a, it's a cycle. So you, you're so conscious of it and then you forget it. And then you become so conscious of it again and then you forget it. Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a quick word from our sponsor, tripping.com. If you're planning a vacation, particularly a vacation with a group, uh, you may want to consider a vacation rental. They can be more flexible with extra bedrooms, fully stocked kitchens, even hot tubs. Uh, you get a little bit more for your money, but it can be really hard to find the right one for your group. You'll probably be going to all kinds of different sites and get totally confused and uh, everyone will get stressed out and mad at you. There is an easier way and it is with tripping.com where one search lets you compare every home from the world's top vacation rental sites in one place. You can save up to 80% on a traditional hotel room and uh, everyone will think you're great. The whole group will uh, thank you instead of yell at you. This is going to be uh, great for you. So uh, save time and money, get the host you want, at tripping.com slash longform. That's T-R-I-P-P-I-N-G dot com slash longform. Find the perfect vacation rental today. Again, tripping.com slash longform. Thank you, tripping.com. Here I am back with Sheila Hetty. 
There's a conceit in motherhood. Conceit had a weirdly overly negative. Whatever the positive version of a conceit, <laughs> there's a technique in uh, motherhood where you ask sort of uh, Ouija board-like questions and then flip three coins to get a yes or no answer. And I feel like a little bit like that's the tape recorder of motherhood or it's like this framing device. The way I read your answer about the speaking to the recorder is kind of like whatever happens is the right thing to happen. And that's sort of also the coin thing. It's just like whatever direction it goes, we're just going to assume that was the right direction. There's no wrong direction. Yeah, exactly. Like, how do you navigate in a place where there's no wrong directions? Like, how do you find out where you want to go as a writer? It's um, a process of generating a lot, a lot, a lot of material and then cutting out all the bad stuff. I Mm. mean... It's in the writing, for me, it's like years and years of writing and writing as much as I can. Mm -hmm. And I don't have a direction. I don't think this is going to fit here. This could fit here. This holds together this way. I don't care if I write stuff that will have no relationship to anything else I've written because I know that in the end, I'll find a form and a structure. But in the generating of it, I'm not thinking about that. And then, yeah, in the editing, obviously, you figure out how they, all those pieces fit together and which ones to throw out. What's the bad stuff like? Like what? what bad writing? Bad, just bad <laughs> just writing, like, yeah. You just look at it and you shake your head. You're embarrassed. You even put it down. Yeah. Yeah. And editorially, like a lot of times normally when I talk to people about like editing work, they're sort of trimming fat. Or they're saying like, yeah, you've already said this here. Or like, we need this book to have more of like a a straight through. And it seems to me like what you're doing is not, you're not shooting for a straight through and you're not shooting to remove the fat. If you remove the fat, there's nothing like, left. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a it's a it's very it's a very very thin animal without the fat. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, I think you're like sometimes talking about the nature of fat and how like life is just a bunch of f- fat all over the place. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so um, when you sit down with an editor, like tell me about like what your goals for improving a book like this are. When when you're midstream and you have just like pages and pages and pages and they're in different forums and some of them are emails some of them are transcripts yeah. some of them are like coin flip sequences like do you have a discussion where you're like hey yo I really think this book only needs eight of these coin flip sequences and there's 19 of them in here right now yeah well I don't show it to an editor until very very late in the process I I show it to friends a lot uh-huh. um, more than the editor is like the very very end I don't know why that's just I'd rather show it to my friends yeah you know and so I I think, well, with motherhood, it, it, I just want people to get to the end of the book. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, how do you keep people there? Yeah. And I never read books to the end. I always get distracted and start another book. And so yeah. that's like really my goal is like, how can you keep somebody I just, to the very I just end? started being an abandoner when I did this show because it's just really? like naturally you kind of have to abandon. And I have such a strong moral object to it for some reason. I think my mom must have like told me it was bad to abandon books. Oh, I had never no. abandoned book till Life I was like short. 25 years old. Wow. But it, it is liberating abandoning books. Yeah. But I'm also really, now I've got an app where you can um, put in the books that you've read. And so yeah. I want to get to the end of a book just so I can have another book in my app of like completed books. So it's motivating me to read books to the end. And I'm discovering how nice it really is to read books to the end. Mm-hmm. Tell me about in the case of motherhood, 
What specifically is important about getting to the end of the book for you? I mean, something big happens emotionally at the end of the book. Yeah. And I think there is a feeling of completion. And the book is so much about this wrestling with the question of, you know, do I become a mother? What's my relationship to time? Having a woman's body, being a human. There's just like so much wrestling that I think there is some kind of beauty in even just a pause in that. But yeah, you were asking me about how do you edit and like how do you like what do you do when the book's all fat, which to me means like you're just I'm just trying to like represent consciousness of what it feels like to have a brain. Yeah. Which is a lot of jumbled things. Yeah. And so for me it was like the middle of the book, like how much how much wondering and repetition of that wondering is the right amount because too much it's just boring yeah not enough you don't get the feeling of how exhausting this question is and questioning is so that for me was i don't know i don't know maybe the middle should have been a bit longer or something like <laughs> that i always still wonder like should i have like made it a little even meaner to the audience let's say but i think i also wanted to get the sense of time passing so you need to draw out this ruminating, this frustration with how come I can't answer my own question? How come I can't get to the other side of this? And it was it was a matter of like taking out the things that sounded too essayistic because when you are asking yourself questions and trying to solve problems for yourself, you can write things that sound smart and essayistic but actually what when you pay attention to your brain it's not the smart and essayistic parts that are the most interesting it's the more emotional like almost self-defeating parts that really create the character of that time of wondering you know why can't i come to the end of this like to me that's that says more about the dilemma of whether or not to have a child than some smart feminist, you know, whatever <laughs> comment that you're going to make. That's not the thoughts that happen in your head. That's the thoughts that might happen if you're writing an essay about it, but not if you're like walking through your life with this question. Something that comes up when I've talked to documentary filmmakers on this show is, you know, you'll set up a whole narrative. You'll follow a court case for five or 10 years and you're like, God, I hope something happens at the end. Like, I hope something great happens in reality so I can end this fucking movie because right. I literally am out of money and I have to go back to teaching. And you set up, I think, very effectively that rumination and that uncertainty in the first part of the book. And since this is not about you, but is about someone who has similarities to you, did you feel a pressure to like have something happening in your life that would feel final for this book or even to just think of a way to tie the strands together because I really didn't know when I was reading motherhood like you set up so many different ruminations it could end on many many different notes but it's still I still felt a pressure I was like oh she gonna have the baby here just so like <laughs> we have like a good final scene to this book or whatever I was like I, I, I cycled through in the same way you do when you're like watching a cable thriller like all of the possible like resolutions I was like oh, maybe she has a baby in the book, but she doesn't have a baby in real life or something. Yeah. You know, I was like, kind of just like 
taking it to all the meta extremes. But the book does have to end somehow. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, no, I didn't feel a pressure to make something happen or like a fear that nothing would happen because I don't know. I just I, I figured, you know, you just need to end on a good line. And I went, when I had that line that I thought, OK, this is a good line to end on. That was a big relief. But no, I wasn't. I wasn't thinking like I need to push my life in a certain way that I can then write about so that the ending of the book is. But I had a friend, a writer, say to me like when I was early on in writing the book, like you should have a baby and then the second half of the book is what it's like to have the baby. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I don't think that's like right to have the baby just so I can, you know, write the second half of the book different from the first. But it stuck in my head in this way of like, is this person right? Should I have a baby just because that would be a better book. Yeah. There was an element to the book where I think you capture really well the judginess of other people and how much this question is about not yourself but other people's perception of you. And it reflected on me while I was reading the book. I have a um, a four-month-old child, and I don't want to like totally spoiler the ending, but I was like, you do not have a child. And I was like, I almost felt like I had like bought something on Amazon and then like read the reviews and people are like, it's not that great or whatever. I was like, like, could you just agree with like, I already have the baby. So could you conclude that it was a good idea? I mean, I'm not even the woman in this situation, but I still felt this like slight tinge of like, I wish she'd come to the same conclusion that I did. Yeah. I think we want everyone to do what we do. Yeah. Yeah. But wait, you didn't think that the book didn't really make you feel like having a baby was a bad idea, did it? No, it didn't make me think oh. having a baby was a bad idea. I just, I like it when people consider a question I like me. And, and this is like, I'm, I'm being a terrible person right now. I'm like embodying a terrible person, but it's just like, I'm sure if I hadn't had a baby, I would always feel judged by people who did have babies or whatever. It's just right. like, I, like literally, I think I was actually thinking, cause my wife read uh, motherhood before I did. Um, like she read it, I guess maybe right after we had the baby I think because it's not very old and I was like imagining her like reading it as like a woman who's like almost the same age as you was in like a similar like life point and I was just feeling things I I was feeling irrational things yeah what's it like taking this book out like on the road and like going to like a bookstore of like people who've read the book and have their own life experiences coming to it. It's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. I was really scared and really dreading it and really prepared for a lot of hostility or a lot of projection or very personal questions. Yeah. I mean, I've only, this is only my second stop, so it may still turn out to be all that. Um, <laughs> There's but, still a chance if yeah. you want to go judge Sheila in yeah, person. Come see me in Washington <laughs> tonight. Um, but it hasn't so far been that way. And I feel like I have to say, you know, with How Should a Person Be, I worried that there was going to be like a lot of creepy guys who like read the sex part and would like send me creepy emails. That didn't happen once. Really? Yeah. And maybe people are better than I think. Like maybe people are more respectful than I give people credit for. And that's really not going to happen. So these are real people in your life who are the subjects of these books. Um, or, well, more so in the last book than this book, really. Uh, yeah. This book, there's a lot of composite characters. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. But you do have a mother. <laughs> yeah, I do have one mother. <laughs> like, you have a, the narrative of this book has a mother. Yeah. And you have a mother. Yeah. And I'm guessing that your, Can't deny it. your mother 
there's at least like part of the composite character of the mother. Oh, the, the mother is less of a composite than the friends and the and the women. Yeah, yeah. The mother in the book is very, very much. Um, you know, my mother is also a serious woman. Is also a doctor. Is yeah. also the child of a Holocaust survivor. Like all that stuff is from my life. And I think at a point in the book, you send the book to your the narrator sends the book to her mother. Now that you're like a little deeper in to like if that experiment that started with the tape recorder, we're like going on ten years into that experiment now, eight years in maybe. What has it been like to do this to the people in your life and to have this like be a part of your relationship and especially as you've become better known so I assume that like other people they know have read your books and seen them through that weird prism triangulation yeah well it's fun with my mother because I've been sending her the reviews and she's never had much of a relationship to my writing life it's not anything that she ever seemed to particularly understand or have a re- personal relationship too. It's just like, good for you, you know? Yeah. But now she's reading all the reviews and she's so smart about them. She reads one and she's like, that person didn't get the book at all and she's very outraged by it. And then she'll read another <laughs> one and then she'll be like, that's a really smart review. And her her idea about which is a smart review and which is not, they're right. Like she gets it. And it's so fun for me to have her on my side going yeah. through this and because we've never had that kind of intimacy around my work. Yeah. So it's a real pleasure. And it's also like I don't feel so alone in it. Like there's something about being reviewed where you feel really um, – yeah, you just feel alone in it. You feel like they're talking about my book and I'm the only one who's having an emotional reaction to the review. You know, everyone else just reads it. It's a review. But for the writer, you just like – it can hurt, you know? Yeah. And – um. But having my mom, it's indescribably unlonely. Like, it's very fun. And I feel sort of, I feel very kept company and taken care of or something to have her reading them and, and responding to them. And I feel like almost like she's in front of me in this phase. Yeah. In this way that, again, is really new for me in my life. And I love it. You describe yourself as a younger person or the narrators describe themselves as as younger people, as someone who kind of always knew that you wanted to be in art, that like just to be anywhere near it doesn't like, it feels like you're just sort of magnetically attracted to the idea of like art culture, just capital art. And it's something I identify with because I've never really known what I wanted to do with my life, but I love that stuff. I also grew up in a family that wasn't that wasn't the kind of family I grew up in. Like, what do you think put you on this path? Do you think is it just something inside you? I think it's just born with it. Like, I just yeah. always, when I was a kid, I would act or direct or write or take pictures. When I was a teenager, like, it's just some people are like that. You just have to have that in your life. I don't know. It's just where I got happiness from, and it's like why somebody becomes an athlete and someone else becomes an artist like you're just your body was made that way your brain was made that way right yeah and but and then there are those kids who are like um you know the children of professional athletes who become athletes and that's like a a different thing what did your parents think particularly when this was just an ambition and you weren't publishing or potentially even writing what did your parents think of that person you were and wanted to be i mean they were afraid for me you know, as anybody who has a kid who wants to be a writer, they're like, 
I think they understood that it was a hard life. It was a life in which you wouldn't necessarily make enough money. Yeah. You know, it was a life in which you might be setting yourself up for a great amount of disappointment. So, I mean, my dad's father was a painter. So there was in him this idea that it wasn't so crazy to him, you know? It wasn't so outside his understanding. Um, but, yeah, my mom just thought it was a bad idea. And it probably, like is a bad idea in a lot of ways. <laughs> she was totally right. Yeah, but um, my dad was like supportive, but he was also like cautioning. What do you think it is that changed that you feel like your mom is on your side now or it seems like maybe even understands your work now? I mean, I think the book really moved her and really had an effect on her mm -hmm. so maybe you understand like that it's not necessarily a frivolous thing to be doing if you can be moved by it maybe it's not just oh you're playing all you do is play you know I think my mom always had this idea that like writing was playing and it is playing but like it's a serious kind of playing you know and um, you know she's a doctor so her work is very I'm just to get up in the morning, go to the hospital, you know, work long hours. And I think to her, my life looked super decadent. <laughs> and it is, you know, I don't have to get up in the morning. I can just like stay in bed and write. There is a kind of laziness. You might think, oh, my kid is not really doing anything with her days. You know, why does she get to have so much fun when I'm working so hard? If the technique of how should a person be was centrally the the tape recorder. How did you transcribe these years of your life that are in motherhood? I just wrote as I was, I mean, for me, discipline in writing is like, when you feel the urge to write, you have to write. Because that moment, there's something in you that wants to be expressed. And if you miss that moment, it's not like you can write about it tomorrow. Yeah, It's now or never. So for me, discipline has always been about paying attention to that urge and going along with it, even if it's sort of inconvenient, even if you're tired, even if the last thing you want to be doing is sitting at the computer. So that if there's a transcribing of my life and motherhood, it was that, like catch those moments where it feels like there's something to catch. You know, I don't um, write in the sense of, like my discipline is not sit down, work for four hours, <laughs> you know, go about the rest of my day. Yeah. How do you manage the time where you don't feel like writing? Like what does the rest of your time look like when you're sitting around waiting to feel that way? Well, I don't sit around waiting to feel that <laughs> way. <laughs> I go out with friends. I email. Yeah. I have lots of correspondences with friends. Yeah. Um, I spend a lot of time writing emails to friends and responding. And I really like having conversations I like talking to my friends about their books and their writing projects and yeah. yeah, and just like reading, reading the internet, reading books. You said that you, before you talk to an editor, you send portions of the books to friends. Do you talk, like when you're emailing with friends while you're writing a book, do you talk about the book that you're yeah. writing and the problems you're having? Yeah, like, totally. What is it like being so closely plugged into a critical feedback apparatus at all times? For the most part, I love it. It's very exciting. It's very alive, but it can be very hard. Yeah. Um, I had a friend who read a draft of the book, um, the first draft that I showed anybody she read and a few other people read, but she hated it. And she was just like, this book is 
bad. Wow. Yeah, and and I believed her, and I was like, and and not only is it bad, I felt that she was saying you're bad. Yeah. You know, and not only is the book bad, but it's it reveals things about you that I don't like, and it was incredibly hard. It was incredibly hard for me to work on the book for about nine months after that, and. I'm glad she said it. I think the book is better as a result, but it was really painful. And um, when you say the book is better as a result, what effect did that feedback have on the book? It's hard to say because I, I don't know what edits I would have done if I hadn't received her response. Yeah. So I can't really remember what I thought. I think I sort of thought the book was basically pretty close to being done, and she was like, "It's not even close." And so, um, I don't know. I I forget your question. Well, it was just like I'm, I'm like hearing, I'm emotionally undergoing this right. all it's, over again. I guess it just sounds difficult to me to have a sea of voices like that in here. Like I've heard yeah. of people like who it's have sort of one trusted reader or whatever. But as you open up to multiple viewpoints, yeah. how do you keep that from just like if someone says this is great, like don't change a thing, another person's like. I don't like this book and I don't like you anymore. Like, how do you find a common ground there in your own head editorially? I don't know. I mean, when I showed that draft to that friend, I also showed it to another friend who loved it. So I was buoyed by that, you know? Yeah. If I hadn't showed it to the friend who loved it, I think I would have maybe thrown the whole thing out. It's possible that I would just said, this is, I failed, you know? Forget this. But I think it's better to show it to more people rather than fewer because then you can sort of synthesize in your head like this er editor, you know, and you can take the things that are useful to you. And I can say in my head to my friend that didn't like the book, well, I think these things are right and these things are wrong. But I was just so angry at her when I was editing it. And I think I was like, there was a bit of a, um, I'll show you, yeah, <laughs> which is not a bad thing to feel when you're writing. Like... I'm going to make this so good. Yeah. You know. I remember when I read How Should a Person Be, it was one of the first books I read that I felt like was written in a modern language or the the language I had grown up in. And now I'm, I'm literally like reading another book right now, um, Mary H.K. Choi's book that is all messaging. Okay. And I know that there's a natural pushback against it. Like I know that there's naturally someone who you can write a book and it doesn't matter if it's your book or HK's choice book, anyone who is starting to embrace language in this kind of a way that you could just be like, you know, when you said that you're trying to get less essayistic, I love essays and I hate this. Like how do you deal with the, that there could be a natural like negative reaction? Like you could read a review that's just like, I hate this. It's just like someone talking about their interior monologue and you're like, yeah, I've, I wrote a book that was someone talking. If you, you you didn't have to read the book. I could have told you you would have not liked it if you don't like X. Yeah. It's exactly what you just said. Like, of course, what, no matter who you are, people are going to hate your book. And yeah. It's not your problem. When you started writing in that way, did like did you naturally like it or did you go like, do I hate this? Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't in love with it. I didn't think like this is a beautiful new form, you yeah. know? It was just what had to be in the book. And that book was supposed to be sort of ugly, you know? And so it did seem kind of unformed. Not that it wasn't shaped, but it did seem kind of... Um, it didn't look like another book to me. So the only things that look good are things that look like other things. <laughs> you know, yeah. if something 
doesn't remind you of something that you already take for beautiful, it's kind of confusing to know what it is. Like I didn't, I still can't quite see what the shape of that book is. Even though I shaped it for so long, I still can't quite keep it all in my head in some way. I mean, but I feel like when I'm writing, that's the hardest part is to like keep that whole thing in your head. And for me, it's just, you end up reading the book like a hundred times, 60 times or something, just to sort of memorize it. Because you can't, I think I have to like see the beginning, the middle, the end, and all the scenes as like looking at a painting. You sort of want to be able to just like glance at it and see everything. Yeah. And that's really hard to do with a novel because something about how memory works. If I'm writing a book, I can't remember the other scenes while I'm working on one scene. There's a weird thing that happens. It like blanks out or something. I, I actually was thinking about this while I was reading your work, which is in some ways narrative, like a strong sense of narrative is like a cliff notes for like remembering keeping it in your head you're like oh and then like they killed the secretary okay okay i remember that like you know like that's sort of like how prestige cable right now is like the episode and it's like and it ends on a cliffhanger then it goes next one and it's partially like keeping in your head it's like oh you pick up the next week and you're like all right i remember the cliffhanger from last week there's nothing to catch in the kind of writing you do i don't know how you could keep this much writing in your head and then if you read it 100 times so you can finally get it all in your head you're now having a very different experience than the reader. than your intended reader who's reading it once yeah um do you ever like try to put yourself in the head of someone who's reading it no. once or worry i should stop like reading this over and over again no i mean that's why i have friends read it because mm. then if a friend reads it for the first time they can say oh, you didn't say this very obvious fact, you know, about this character that would really help the story make sense. Yeah. Because I would miss that. And so, yeah, I mean, with this book, I probably had 20 friends read it, you know, at different points. And I rely on that other people having a first reading of it. Part of what I feel like holds it together, even though you can't get a foothold in the narrative in that way, is that it feels like it has certain like rules. Like in How Should a Person Be? It's like the tape recorder is kind of a rule, which is we're just going to keep recording these conversations, even if they don't go anywhere, even if you're uncomfortable. Like it feels like a game or an exercise in a way. Once you've set out these sort of rules, like it feels a little bit like when you're conceiving of a book, it almost feels like a board game. Right. You're like, I'll do this, this, and this. And then I'll like, whatever happens, we'll like write about it. Do you struggle with issues of like bending the rules? Like let's say in that, like Margot says something and you've got on the thing, you're like, ah, kind of better if she had said it a little bit more like this or like, I don't like that point in between those two statements that doesn't work with what I was trying to do. Yeah, that's editing. I mean, yeah. that editing is not bending the rules. Yeah. But I do think, I mean, you're right. Like for me, the each book has its own rules. Yeah. But there is not the rule, do not make this better. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, what do make good rules? Like um, what have you learned about rule making? I mean, like you say, it's a game. Like yeah. it's uh, and if you cheat, it's less fun. Mm. So, for instance, with the coins, like people ask me sometimes, well, did you ever, you know, if the coin said yes, did you ever just make it no? I'm like, that's no fun for me, yeah. you know? So, no, I never did that. So, it's fun to follow rules. If, yeah. If, you know. So, it's fun to follow the rules. You like yeah. following the rules. What but did you hit rules? a point where you said, 
Jesus, I really wish I could break this rule. Like, no, I don't think so because the rules aren't written down. Where right. I'm like, here are the ten rules. It's just the rules are in your body. It's just like a feeling, mm. you know, like any kind of writing. You have your rules, but you could never articulate them. It's just like this would feel wrong in this book, you know. It's like an instinct, maybe, um, what the rules are. When you set up um, a series of rules like that or, or prompts like that. I remember like reading about how they did the Ali G show. If you watch the Ali G yeah, show, sure. yeah. So like, there's writers on the Ali G show, and you're like, well, why are there writers? It's improvised, and it's like, well, what we would do is we'd look at a bunch of scenarios and be like, if we go do this, what will the other person do? And then what could we do in oh. response? And basically, like, almost look at it like as like improvisatory theater, yeah. and think about all of the possible choose your own adventure strands and try to write jokes within that. So once you've created those rules, do you start seeing like all the different places it could go? Not in the way that of this Ali G. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think I see it that way. Do you it's see more all, like <laughs> all the pranks ahead of you. <laughs> I don't know. I got to say like it's there isn't a flow chart. So I think what you're talking about with the allergy thing is like yeah. a bit of a flow chart. Like yeah. if you go, then you go in this direction and then you follow this path. But with the book, it's not anything like that. It's more just, um, I mean, for me, the hard thing about writing the book was what comes first, one comes second, what passage comes third, like just ordering it. Yeah. And what's the order going to be? And the order, I think, among other things is like, stupider to less stupid like yeah. you want to think the longer you think about something the smarter your thoughts about it get so I try to put the things at the beginning that would have seemed like the kind of things that you would have had at the beginning of this ruminating and then oh that's interesting so like in some ways you have to imagine yourself early in the book in the past with less knowledge you right. can't like time machine back things you've learned later in the book yeah because uh, you don't feel like you're going on a I don't like the word journey but Um, so you've been as we said like at it for 10-ish years like what's this life like that you're leading you know you've done these books these books kind of like are like three four plus years in your (laughs) life Um, how do you organize yourself like how do you organize making money what's this writer's life like for you well after How Should a Person Be, so I was in my mid-30s when it came out, I was able to support myself from my books. Before that, I was doing a lot more journalism. I was writing for magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in my early 20s, I worked at a magazine called Shift, which yep. was a magazine based in Toronto, sort of like a, we always called it the Canadian Wired, you know, like everything <laughs> in Canada is like the Canadian, New York Times, the Canadian, <laughs> da, da, da. Um, so it was always like just, like every writer cobbling together money from wherever you can. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's temping, sometimes it's journalism, sometimes it's, but um, yeah. And then with motherhood, I got an advance that let me write it. And uh, that's sort of my dream because I, I still love writing book reviews and I still love doing interviews, but I don't want to have to do it for money. I want to have to do it just because I'm really interested in it and I want my books to make me money so because I don't think there will ever be a time in my life where I don't want to write books but I think there are many times in my life where I don't want to do journalism what was it like doing journalism during that period like some of the ways you've talked about your fiction as is like stripping away the techniques of journalism from it um I'm trying to think I I remember you writing a profile of Rafi that I really enjoyed that was New York Magazine yes um 
So when you are forced into journalism against your will <laughs> um, and you're simultaneously, I'm thinking, probably writing these books yeah. while you're doing it, what was that like? Well, I mean, sometimes it's a good break. Yeah. And sometimes it's just nice to finish something and see something in print. Yeah. Because it's seven years before the book's in print, you know, from yeah. the moment you start writing it. For me, this was I started writing it in 2010 and it's only coming out today, yesterday, Yeah, you know? So that's eight years. Like, that's just, you have, as a writer, like, you just want to see your byline. Like, you want to see it on the page, you know? Yeah. It gives you a certain self-esteem or something. I completed it, and somebody published it. And so I like doing those things. Um, like, I liked the Rafi piece because I was really interested in Rafi, and I wanted to meet him, and I wanted to write the piece, and, like, that was, that was fun. I don't really like the fact that he didn't like the piece. Oh, he, interesting. So that kind of, I don't think I have the um, disposition really to be a true journalist because I don't want the person that I'm writing about to feel bad, you know? Same. Yeah, and that's a liability. Like, yeah. you have to not care. I think it's, a for me, a shortcoming even in interviews sometimes is that, like, if I had the perception that you were uncomfortable right now and, like, that would, like, very much throw off my energy, like... Um, why did Ra why did Rafi dislike that piece? I mean, the piece started with this. I reread it recently. I hadn't read it since it was published, and I just I didn't reread the whole thing. But I, I started reading it, and I stopped, and I thought, oh, I get it now. The beginning of the piece is um, me wondering whether Rafi has sex with any of the people that loved his music, like his grown up fans who were fans when they were children. I don't know yeah. how to put that. Not his child fans, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> his formerly child fans. Yeah. Because he had, when I interviewed him, he had a kind of very flirtatious vibe. And yeah. I think that if you're a child entertainer, that's not the kind of publicity you want. Right. So yeah. he didn't retweet it. He never said anything to me about it. Mm. And maybe he doesn't retweet the article. But like, I really got the sense that he, even his publicist heard, gave me the cold shoulder after that. And I, I didn't want him to dislike the piece. I wasn't trying to hurt him or get him in trouble or anything. He's like a rock star for children. Yeah. And when I went to his concert, there were a lot of grown women with their children. And the grown women were like, they were losing their shit a bit, you know? Yeah. And especially when they went to meet him, they were like blushing and like stuttering. And I was like, are do these women want to have sex with Rafi? And then when I talked to very I interviewed various friends and and this one friend of mine who's a poet, she was like, Yeah, I remember being like six years old and like lying in bed listening to Rafi and having like sexual feelings in my body like loving his voice feeling a very maybe not sexual but like a feeling of very um I can't remember the word she used but it had, had that that feeling of, uncontrollable emotion yeah yeah I, I mean I, I like even like most of the like artists I like when I was that age I guess were men and I'm heterosexual ostensibly but like you're kind of experiencing charisma for the first time yeah, yeah. and like magnetic, like animal magnetism. Yeah. You're like, what, is, what does this guy got? Like, yeah. I, I, I don't have it. Like yeah. he, he's um, huffing some kind of fumes that are like, like propelling him forward. Yeah. And not all child singers have that charisma yeah. that, or that sort of sexuality, I guess. Yeah. And it was interesting also about Rafi. He didn't set out wanting to be a children's entertainer. Yeah. He set out wanting to be like a Bob Dylan. Like he didn't have any sense that there were kids were going to be his ultimate audience. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. And I think it's always interesting when people like are wildly successful, but like not would like want. to be maybe even less successful, but in a slightly different version of the thing. Yeah. So that was your like journalistic 
foray, which you're like still kind of doing on and off. And you've also done the, the interviewing stuff with the believer at a certain point. Like, are you just ever like, this would be easier for me to just interview people or to just to run like raw transcripts. Like it seems like you're like cutting away layers deeper and deeper towards what is ultimately just like human speech, like unfettered human speech. Tell me about like the difference between interviewing someone and just publishing that versus the more transcription based, like how should a person be style where you're kind of like creating fiction out of real words. I mean, they're, it's different and the same. I mean, I, when I edit my own interviews for The Believer, yeah. the interviews that I've done with writers or artists, I do think of it a little bit like I'm crafting a little play or something. So I, there is a sense in which it's almost less of a transcription than the transcripts that I put into How Should a Person Be, which I really wanted to leave raw and kind of the way conversation actually is. But if it's an interview, I wanted to have an arc mm. and I want to move things around as much as I need. And I wanted to have like pauses, like almost like acts. I mean, the interviews in The Believer are, they're broken up into um, different parts, I guess, you know, yeah. you come to the end of a part. By and topic, it, kind of, yeah. By topic or by, that's a really good sentence to end on. Let's let yeah. that have its own space and then start a new section. So... Did you, was that format already in place at yes. The Believer when you inherited it? So that's just, that's just how The Believer does, does it, it when it yeah. comes to an interview. Yeah. Interesting. And it's nice because you, you do then linger on that thought and yeah. then you move on to the next section. What strikes me as different about that Believer style interview than your books is like, in a believer style interview or like a magazine profile, you're doing something simple, which is answering a question in the same way. Does yeah. Raf does Rafi sleep with the adult version of his child fans? Some something like <laughs> that. Well, everyone gets what we mean. But in those contexts, you answer that question pretty rapidly. You're like, we're starting now, right? And in twenty ish minutes. We're going to be done with this question. Whereas in your books, you're asking a question. You're like, we got to span this question over four to five years. So like, let's not come to any conclusions too quickly. Yeah, but they're also harder questions. Yeah, they're harder <laughs> questions. So do you like when you're thinking about interviewing, do you think about like what like what scale of question or what scale of like a topic for a believer interview fits nicely into that format? No, I just, I asked, like you, yeah. ask the questions I'm genuinely interested in asking mm. and try to ask questions that are possible to answer because sometimes interviewers will like ask questions that I'm like, you couldn't even answer. Like nobody could answer that question, <laughs> you know? But I think also another difference I was thinking about this is like when I edit the interviews for The Believer, I want the person that I've interviewed to seem as smart as possible. Mm. And with the books, I'm not trying to make anyone seem as smart as possible, yeah. you know? I want it to be as we are. What do you do to make someone seem as smart as possible? It's in the editing. You know, you make them, you take out the dumb things they said. Yeah. <laughs> you um, clean up the sentences in such a way that they're more articulate. Yeah. But never so much that they would say, that isn't me. That doesn't sound like me. So my ideal is, because at The Believer, we always send the interviews to the subject and they can respond and change or whatever. Um, and my my hope is always that they'll read it and be like, yeah, that's exactly what I said and that's the order in which I said it and that's me. 
so to edit it, but not beyond their own recognition of themselves. Wow. So you let them edit. Like, what do people do given the ability to edit themselves in that way? People don't do anything, mostly. Interesting. There was one person who edited his interview a lot, really basically rewrote it, and he's a writer. And I just had to say, like, it was actually better before. And he didn't quite believe me, but let me keep the original. That's interesting. I mean, we on this show will allow people like to take things out if they say something like insulting that they didn't do it. But I would, I would never give the ability of someone to just like, you know, repurpose stuff because I feel like we'd be in like a year long you back would. and forth like about every single little thing. Yeah, you know? and that policy was in place before I was at the Believer, so mm-hmm. I don't know why they chose that. But I think it's for that exact reason. You don't want somebody to. I actually don't know why they put that in place because it's very unconventional. But it seems right to me. It does to me too. It's sort of a it positions the interview more as a collaboration yeah. and less one sided. Yeah. Which I like in theory, although I would hate if I had to be a part of that collaboration every month yeah. or every quarter. You know. Maybe it's um, taking over from the Paris Review tradition of the interview being a collaboration. Maybe that's why the believer. Yeah. Decided to do that. I don't know. So where do you go from here? What's next? What's writing wise? Yeah, just like I don't know. Like, do you when you come to an end of a book like this, is your life just like a blank canvas, or have you already started in the next phase? It's a bit of both. Like I'm touring for most of May, and then my hope is June, July, August is just like a summer. You know, like yeah. I want to, I want to hang out and just sort of relax and. I have things that I'm working on, but I'm not going to work on them in any super industrious kind of way. I want to read a lot of books and, yeah, I just kind of feel like reading and lying in the grass and, (laughs) you know, and letting whatever ideas I have for new things just sort of lie in the grass with me. Well, uh, thank you so much for doing this interview. Yeah, thanks. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to Sheila Hetty for coming in on her book tour. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, our intern, Angela Velez. Thank you to our sponsors, Tripping.com and Mubi. Hey, let's talk about Mubi. Uh, I always want to stream something at night. It's like something I like do before I go to bed. And often I spend all of the time that I should be streaming something sitting there trying to figure out what I'm going to watch, trying to find something good to watch and failing. That's where movie enters. It's a curated online cinema that streams exceptional films from around the globe each day a new film they're only up for 30 days so that means there's only 30 movies up at a time and you better watch them and they are great i've really been enjoying it i think you will too go to mubi.com slash longform mubi.com slash longform for an extended free trial free for 30 days you could watch 30 movies in those 30 days i i challenge you okay thank you to movie and we'll be back next week Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Socks brought to you by Teen Milk, 
Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.